self-help books. Uh, they occupy the biggest section in bookshops, as, along with cookbooks, I think. Uh, they're so popular because we all want to improve our lives, to live a more successful life, however you choose to define success. And the titles of the top-selling ones tell you the areas most people want to be successful in. Here's a couple that aim for something fairly simple. How to stop worrying and start living. How to win friends and influence people. Successful? Uh, this one by Anthony Robbins, I'm almost too scared to, uh, to read or put into practice. Awaken the giant within. How to take immediate control of your mental, emotional, physical and financial destiny. Uh, it's scary, but that it's almost certainly about success. Uh, you can see why they sell these books by the thousands, because people want to succeed. They want a life that works. And we're no different as Christians. God wants us to live a successful life, a life that works, which means a life that achieves the things he's designed for it. But the message of 1 Peter is that a successful Christian life will look very different from the way the world views success. Because the Christian is an alien, a tourist in this life. We're just passing through. We have different priorities and goals and qualities. We saw last week what that looked like. The, maybe the key verse of the whole letter, chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from sinful desires that war against your soul and live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. That's a successful life in God's eyes. It answers the who, the what and the why. Who are you? Aliens and strangers. You're different and holy. What? What should you do? Live good lives so that people will recognise you're different. And why? So that they'll glorify God. And as we move into the next verses, the verses that we just read, uh, we can see this general description explained uh, in all sorts of areas of life. If you like, it's a little self-help book except this one's free, how to succeed in life. But since we're aliens and strangers, since we're different to the world, the way we achieve success is also different. It's alien and strange. In fact, it's upside down. And the first piece of upside down advice to succeed in life is this, how to be a royal priest by submitting to everyone. We saw last week the description of who we are as Christians. We're a chosen people, a royal priesthood. But just in case people get the wrong idea and think that being a royal priesthood is about privilege and power, Peter says, no, no. You live out being a royal priest, in verse 13, by submitting yourself for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men. Whether to, the, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong. It doesn't matter who the authority is, 
over you, big or small, in every area of life, submit. Do as you're told. Member of Parliament, policeman, parking inspector, librarian, they can be bossy, pool lifeguard, traffic controller, customs officer, just obey. And do it because of the Lord, because you want to serve him, because he is your ultimate master. He sees everything. He doesn't just see the action, he sees the attitude and the thought as well. He's your number one Lord and therefore you should submit to the number two Lords. And as we do that, God works out his purposes, which you can see in verse 15. Here's what success looks like. For it's God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. When we submit, when we do good, that's God's way of being a quiet but powerful witness to hardened cynics, critics. Christians will always have critics. You may never be able to convince some people what you believe, but their criticism of you won't be accurate if your behaviour is good. If the only thing they can criticise is your belief rather than your behaviour. That's God's will, that God's kingdom would be extended as we do good. If you jump down to verse 18, you can see what submission looks like for slaves. Not surprisingly, they should submit as well, but not just to the good master. They're to submit to the harsh master as well. And not just to do it unwillingly, with grumbling and resentment, but they're to obey with respect. To have the attitude, to have that attitude because they're serving God. In fact, it's respectfully obeying the bad or the harsh master that will make the Christian different. Verse 19 says, For it's commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he's conscious of God. It's commendable. God is impressed when a Christian responds in a godly manner to to an unjust master. No one else might notice how you behave, but God notices. We can extend that idea of slavery, I think, to all of us who work. It's so easy, isn't it, to complain about work, to grumble about injustices, things that are not fair. We all do it. It's almost an acceptable topic of conversation over morning tea. Ah, the workload. Ah, that boss. How's your week been? Well, we almost expect someone to say, oh, it's been super busy. Oh, I've been so busy. We may not be grumbling, but it's close, isn't it? How well do you bear up under injustices? What's your attitude? Maybe you've been overlooked again for a promotion. Maybe because you won't play their game. Or perhaps you're expected to work back late to cover for somebody else who's not pulling their weight. Or maybe your supervisor takes credit for work that you've done. How well do you bear up under that sort of injustice? Do you just cheerfully and patiently get on with it? Quietly and conscientiously do your job? Is that what you're known for in your office? 
God loves it when we submit with all respect to our masters. Well, that's chapter one of how to succeed in life. Uh, Chapter two, how to be truly free. It sounds attractive, doesn't it? Whether it's financial freedom, like that, a self-help book called The Four-Hour Work Week, Escape the Nine to Five, sounds good. Or maybe it's moral freedom we're attracted to, wanting to live the way you want, without restriction or rule. But the Bible actually calls that sort of life slavery, not freedom. Uh, People who do anything they like without rules, they're actually enslaved by their own sinful, selfish desires. Enslaved because they have to keep up with everybody. Keep up with the endless uh, seeking satisfaction of things that can't satisfy you. That's slavery. Possessions, relationships, experiences that never satisfies Uh, People like that are powerless to break free, powerless to choose what is actually good. They're powerless to live the way God wants, to live with his priorities. And that sort of life is slavery also because of its consequences, where it finishes. Uh, We're headed for God's wrath, for judgement and hell if we're living like that. But instead, Christians have been set free from that sort of slavery. We've been made into new people. We've been freed from sinful selfishness. And God has given us his spirit so we have power to serve and submit and love. We've been freed from our fallen nature. We're able to choose obedience and godliness and we have eternal consequences. We have a whole new world that opens up when, we, when God sets us free from being slaves. You can see this upside down advice in verse 16. We've been set free so we can, uh, to serve. Set free to serve. See there in verse 16? Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Christian freedom isn't an excuse to live the way you want to live. It's not a licence to sin. It's a freedom within limits, within God's limits. He sets the boundaries for your freedom. It's a bit like Thomas the Tank Engine. Thomas the Tank Engine is free to travel anywhere he likes. He's got a full coal car, The world is his to explore. He can go anywhere as long as he stays on the tracks. There wouldn't be much freedom if he chose to leave the tracks and go through that field over there. He'd very quickly be bogged in the middle of a muddy field. And that's like us. Uh, God has set us free to travel anywhere we like on his tracks. We have the freedom to live out our God-given potential within the boundaries of God's commands. When we leave those tracks, it's ruin. So what does it look like to live as free men? Verse 17, show proper respect for everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers, fear God, honour the king. It's not very complicated really, is it? 
This seems a little like Peter's version of Jesus' summary of the whole law. Do you remember Jesus' summary? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbour. Sums up everything. Uh, Peter says, you're free to do all sorts of things in all sorts of ways, in all sorts of places, but here are the boundaries. Respect everyone. Treat everyone as equal. Whatever their sex or colour or nationality or intelligence. I think Christians over the, down through history have done that particularly well in terms of looking after the people that everybody else overlooks. It's Christians who look after lepers and beggars and prostitutes and orphans and slaves, the old, the terminally ill. We show them the human dignity that they deserve. We're showing proper respect to them. They're made in God's image too. And Peter says, reserve a special place for the believers, their family. They're your priority. If there's a decision to be made about priorities, the church comes first. And above mankind, show respect for God, fear God. Fear God means maintain a healthy respect for his character and his standards. If there comes a choice between pleasing people or pleasing God, you choose God. Respect him. Be a God pleaser, not a man pleaser. Work for an audience of one rather than a crowd. It's his relationship that determines your other relationships. And then under God, honour the king, submit and respect. We've talked about that a little already. They're the broad brushstrokes of how a Christian is set free to be a slave for God. Well, our next upside down advice is into chapter 3. We've moved from the public life into marriage. First the wife. Here's the advice, how to make your man do what you want by saying nothing. How to make your man do what you want by saying nothing. I think wives would love that. If our husbands were so tuned in to a wife's needs that she didn't even need to ask. Peter's not thinking about needs in general though. He's thinking about the wife who's married to a non-Christian. She's become a Christian but he's not, at least not yet. But she wants him to become a Christian more than anything. And Peter's command goes against the natural inclination. Nagging him won't work. You can't harass him into God's kingdom. Instead, his message, Peter's message is consistent. Back up in chapter 2 he talk about, spoke about submitting to everything, to all authorities. Uh, And in chapter 3 he says a similar thing. Chapter 3 verse 1. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. See, God's way is to work through a wife's submission and quiet reliance on God through her godly, humble, patient, consistent actions. Down in verse 4, he commands wives to have a gentle and quiet spirit. 
That's how you make your man do what you want, by saying nothing. That's success. Well, the next upside-down piece of advice shows what that will look like for the Christian wife. It teaches, us, it teaches her how to be beautiful without makeup or a new wardrobe. How to be beautiful without makeup or a new wardrobe. True beauty, you see, beauty that lasts, beauty that counts, beauty that a husband can appreciate more and more as the years go by, is an inner beauty. And that's true whether you're a wife or a husband, whether you're married or single, young or old, it's the inner self, it's your character, your patience, your purity, goodness, compassion, gentleness, joy, humility, your love, that's real beauty. You can't jazz that up with a curling iron or sparkling jewels or elegant clothes. You can't disguise any blemishes in your character under makeup. And what's more, it's beauty that lasts. The ten visible signs of ageing have no effect on an inner beauty. There's an attractiveness, an engaging and an appealing quality about people who are like that, who have an inner beauty. That's the way to really make your husband sit up and take notice. Not just your husband. God notices that sort of beauty. Peter says in verse 3, don't focus on hair, clothes or jewellery. Instead, your beauty should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is of great worth in God's sight. God loves to see it gentle and quiet submission. More valuable to him than the hugest diamond because that's how he works out his purposes for you. And it's just as important to keep your attention on God as you work on your inner beauty before your husband. Verses 5 and 6 connect submitting to your husband with putting your hope in God. And in verse 6 it connects submitting to your husband with not giving way to fear. So how do those two things, not giving way to fear and uh, putting your hope in God, how does that connect with submitting to your husband? You see, when you trust God to work out his plans in your marriage, then you can let go of scheming and plotting and nagging. You can let go of fear You can let go of having to be in control. You can let go of pushing. You can let go of criticism of your husband. You see, a gentle and quiet spirit is an expression of your hope in God because you're trusting that he will work. A gentle and quiet spirit is an expression of your choice not to fear. So wives, how gentle and quiet are you? Or single ladies, how gentle and quiet are you? How much are you trusting the situation you're in to God and how much are you not fearing and how is that seen in your inner beauty? Is your first instinct to speak to your husband about problems or is it to speak to God? 
God's the one who changes hearts, who opens eyes and unblocks ears. God breathed life into dead hearts. Put your hope in him, not in your words. Trust God's method. It's submission and a gentle and quiet spirit. It can happen. It does happen. It does happen. Uh, Let me tell you about Jill Berkmeyer. She was a struggling young mum in Cairns in 1976. I was 10 years old at that time. Uh, Dad had just been appointed to Cairns Presbyterian Church as an assistant minister and Mum befriended Jill who lived across the road, gave some practical help with her new baby. Dad helped Jill out with some Bible studies and Jill ended up coming to the church and being looked after by the whole church. Uh, Jill wrote to my dad shortly after she heard my mum had died a number of years ago Uh, and she wrote to thank Dad for how much both mum and dad had influenced her life. Dad couldn't even remember Jill, Uh, but he read me some of the letter. This is Jill writing. The following year the Lord brought me out from my miry pit and set me upon the solid rock of Christ. To this day I've sought to follow the example that you and Leah set. I've sought to always open my heart and my home to those in need that some may be one to Christ. I've tried to give people sound answers to their questions, be they Christian or otherwise. My husband, Ken, a Scotsman, came to the Lord 17 years later. Now that was just one sentence in that letter. But it struck me 17 years I don't know how Jill lived with her husband during that time but it's not really the point because it was God who did it. And God's timing for Ken Berkmeyer was 17 years after his wife became a Christian. God's method does work. So wives, keep working on your inner beauty. Keep not giving in to fear. Keep putting your hope in God for those that you love. It may be your husband, it might be your children, it might be your parents. Uh, That they'll be won over without words by the pure and reverent behaviour of your lives. Well, that's wise. You might, husbands, you might think you've gotten off so far, but let me turn to you. It's the husband's turn. Uh, How to be heard by listening. How to be heard by listening. There's another piece of upside down advice Listen to Peter's command in verse 7. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Now, it's funny, as we read this verse with modern eyes and modern sensibilities, I reckon the bit that jumps out at us is husbands treat your wife as the weaker partner. And women are sitting up going, weaker? Who's weaker? You try giving birth. But I think for Peter, for for Peter's hearers, the the counter-cultural bit, the bit that jumped out at them was another bit. Husbands, be considerate of your wife. Treat her with respect as the weaker partner, as a co-heir in life. 
be considerate. Uh, Peter says, treat them as weaker. Now, we could say maybe he doesn't actually mean they are weaker, but treat them as if they are weaker. Uh, I think he probably means physically weaker. But I think what he's getting at is, husbands, treat your wives gently. Your wives are like a fine crystal wine glass. They're not a tin coffee cup. They're not blokes. So don't talk to, don't treat your wife the way you talk to your mates. Men are to lead their family with their wife as different but equal. There's no male priority in this. It's not males are more important. We're heirs together. Co-heirs. So husbands, you're to treat your wife with thoughtfulness and respect and gentleness. Support, listen, understand. That's treating her as fragile. Now that would be hugely countercultural in Greek society where women had no power, where men abused that powerlessness. But that's not God's way. And when we listen to our wives like that, Peter says God hears our prayers, men. It's how you can be heard by listening. It's the last upside down command. Right there at the end of verse 7. Treat your wives with consideration and respect as co-heirs so that nothing will hinder your prayers. What's the connection? If you take advantage of the weakness of your wife, if you don't respect her as a co-heir, how can you expect God to hear your prayers? You're pleading for mercy and help and support from God but you're not willing to show those things to your wife. You switch off when your wife talks to you but you expect God to listen to you. You're impatient but you expect God to be patient. You keep a record of wrongs but you expect God to forget yours. No wonder there's a blockage in your communication with God. Listen to your wife so that you can be heard. And so we come to the last contradiction the ultimate one, the one that makes sense of all the others, the one that lifts this advice from just mere rules for living to something richer. Because all of these upside down commands work because they tune us into the way God himself works. When we live like this, we tune ourselves to the way God works. What do I mean by that? Well, the ultimate upside down contradiction is Jesus and all of these other ways of living, all these other pieces of advice reflect Jesus himself. You see there in verse 21, why should we submit to this you were called because Christ suffered for you leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. The one with infinite power chose to lay it aside, to submit. He came not to be served, but to serve. The one who was truly free came to be a slave. And so our submission 
our quiet humility, our thoughtfulness, our compassion, it, it will work, it will be successful, it will achieve God's purposes because that's the way God did it with Jesus. He worked out his perfect, powerful, death-defeating purposes through Jesus' weak submission. It was success through failure. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds we are healed. Success through failure. His death brought us life. His obedience unleashed the power for us to live obediently instead of self-centredness to live out contentment and generosity. Instead of self-promotion to live out humility. Instead of self-interest to live out honesty and kindness. Instead of self-assertiveness to live out self-denial. Instead of rights to live out responsibilities. But surely submission won't work. The world screams at us. Let me finish by quoting a commentator on Peter. He writes, But what does work actually mean? If by work you mean buying a sportier boat or a newer coat, maybe submission won't work. But the way of suffering and submission is the divinely intended manner of bringing the greatest victory of God into the world. What really works is what works with God and what works with God is the cross. Let's take up our crosses. Let's pray. Now, Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to take up our cross and follow Jesus who submitted to every authority in gentle humility. May that be us. Amen.